Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Interim Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Dr. Phil Chan. Welcome, everyone. And Dr. Chan, always nice to hang out with you. Today, we have two special guests. We're going to talk about the changing role of pharmacies in the pandemic. Pharmacies have changed a lot during the pandemic, and it's interesting. I'm someone who, I don't know if you knew this, Dr. Chan, I actually grew up in a small pharmacy in upstate New York because hmm. my grandfather started a pharmacy in 1931. It was called Mara's Pharmacy. It's still there today, uh, but during the pandemic, actually changed hands. Ownership changed after 90 years. So I grew up in a pharmacy. You know, I know a little bit about what the backroom pharmacy looks like, but you know what? The pharmacy world has changed so much since the pandemic. We're talking to Dr. Jeff Bratberg from the University of Rhode Island College of Pharmacy. And then we're talking to Dr. Sabrina Silvera as well from the University of Rhode Island as well. So this is exciting to have Dr. Bratberg and Dr. Silvera with us today. Dr. Bratberg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and then Dr. Silvera, we'll have you do the same question. Dr. Bratberg, to you. All right. Thank you. And it's an honor to be on. I remember when you started this podcast and inspired us to start our own podcast too. So maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that. I am a clinical professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Rhode Island, uh, uh, celebrating my 20th year there as a professor. I, uh, I also have an appointment at the Rhode Island Department of Health as the academic collaborations officer in the Academic Institute, helping connect uh, academia and public health and uh, trying to do as many good things as possible through all of our graduates and residents and uh, colleagues uh, throughout the state. And I'm Dr. Sabrina Silvera, and I am a newly graduated pharmacist from the University of Rhode Island College of Pharmacy. And I'm very excited to be on this podcast. Public health has been something that I've been really interested in throughout pharmacy school, and I'm looking forward to expanding that training in my role as a pharmacist um, within my residency that's starting up this summer. Well, welcome both Dr. Bratberg, Dr. Silvera. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, Dr. McDonald, I just wanted to let you know too that uh, my wife's actually a pharmacist, so I am familiar with pharmacists. And in fact, Dr. Bratberg here trained her, so she went to URI. Uh, this is how small Rhode Island is. And what's even smaller is when I first uh, did my medical training here uh, back as a medical student, uh, when I did a rotation here, uh, Dr. Bratberg was one of the first people from Rhode Island I actually met. So small world. But uh, Dr. Silvera, let me ask you this. And this is a question just for uh, the audience here. You know, pharmacists, we tend to think of, of, of individuals that uh, dispense medications, you know, give out medications. But talk to us about what, the, you know, the role of a pharmacist in general, is it only about giving out medications? Do you do other stuff? What's it, what's it like being a pharmacist? So I, like the general public, before I went to pharmacy school, thought pharmacists were either in a community pharmacy or if they were in like a hospital basement dispensing meds. That's all I thought it was. I was interested in that. But in my training, in my years in pharmacy school, I realized that pharmacists do so much more. Pharmacists work in clinical aspects of patient care. They do so much more than I thought or the general public thought. And it's so nice to see that the pharmacist role is expanding. So now we give vaccines, we have me we make medication recommendations, and we're part of the patient healthcare team. So it's so great to see that the pharmacist role is expanding, even beyond what I thought it was before I started school. You know, Dr. Silvera, if there was one word, I would describe the way pharmacy has changed during the pandemic. It's just the emphasis on the word clinical. You know, it's, it's just much more clinical. And I want to go to you, Dr. Braffberg, talk a little bit about the training of a pharmacist. You know, it's interesting. Like, so my grandfather was a pharmacist, graduated from the University of Connecticut, 
in the late 20s, 1920s. He was called a pharmacy graduate. My brother John's a pharmacist. John listens to the podcast. Let's give a hi to John, by the way. So John's a registered pharmacist. He graduated, gosh, I'm thinking like maybe in the 1980s. That's a long time ago. Um, but we've got a different degree now. So tell us a little bit, what is the training of a pharmacist, Dr. Bratberg? Yeah, the, the great question. So uh, most of the training, or all the training in the country now is a four-year professional degree. So it matches what uh, physicians do for their medical school and, and, and other trainees. Uh, at the University of Rhode Island, we have what's called a 06 program, which is sort of a unique role. We think we draw a lot of people for that. There's only a handful of the over, I think, 150 colleges and schools of pharmacy in the country where uh, students are accepted into the pharmacy program. And if they maintain our rigorous uh, requirements, they enter the pharmacy program, what we call their first professional year, so P1s. And so then they're in pharmacy school for four years. Most of the other schools in the country and colleges actually are a 4-4 program. So they go to school for eight years. They get a, a, a bachelor's degree and then they enter their professional program. Some programs are accelerated. Um, uh, like there's uh, ones in the region that are three-year accelerated pharmacy programs. Um, and then as Dr. Silvera is, is entering in her residency, there are postgraduate residencies. They aren't required like uh, physicians, uh, but they are becoming more and more popular. And those residencies also enable pharmacists to specialize in psychiatry or cardiology or infectious disease or critical care, which are which were my specialties. Uh, and increasingly, there's also fellowships. Pharmacies, uh, pharmacies a lot of our students go do uh, fellowships. Uh, it's interesting in terms of postgraduate training, we're in the top 10 of the pharmacy schools in the country to match this year are the same match that residencies do for, for physicians to match our students into fellowships or postgraduate residencies. Um, so that's a really big honor to show uh, how great our training is at URI. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I mean, Dr. Bratberg, I couldn't agree more. Dr. Silvera, you know, you've been working at a hospital outpatient pharmacy. Maybe you could just share a little bit what that's like. I don't know, any stories come to mind? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I've been very fortunate to work for an outpatient hospital pharmacy for the past couple of years, and I really enjoyed my time there. I, as a the time, a student pharmacist, I was able to go counsel medications for patients that are getting discharged. So I'd go up to their bedside, I'd have their bag full of prescriptions that they were going home with. And I was able to go through each medication with them. And I thought it was really helpful for a lot of patients. I could talk to them about side effects or if they had co-pays and what we could do to help. Um, one story that really sticks out is we had this patient who was admitted for um, an overdose as well as sepsis due to the patient's use of um, different illicit substances. Uh, the patient had overdosed on multiple different substances, including opioids. So we were trying to get the patient some naloxone to go home with. And it's something that we do constantly. We have a standing order that we can prescribe naloxone to our patients that are getting discharged. And I told Dr. Bratberg about this, that the patient, because they had mass Medicaid insurance, they only covered brand name Narcan. We were unable to give her her prescription because we didn't stock it anymore now that we have a generic. And it was something that really stood out to me because I was on my public health rotation and I was like, wow, I'm doing everything I can to get this patient the naloxone that they need to go home with to prevent any serious complications from another overdose. And I couldn't. And I told Dr. Bratberg about it and we ended up getting in touch with Mass Medicaid or Mass Health and they changed their formulary so that they now cover generic naloxone. And it was this whole spiral, but for me, it was 
really the importance of talking to people and having those connections to promote public health. And that's something that was really important to me. It's something that I learned while in pharmacy school. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Silvera, for that. And let me ask you this, actually, if you don't mind. So going to pharmacies. So pharmacies, I think, you know, one thing I've been really impressed upon uh, press during the pandemic is is how we've leveraged as a state and really as a country, the uh, both the location and the resources of pharmacies in general. Um, but can you talk to us a little bit about how pharmacies themselves uh, have been uh, a touch point in terms of people accessing healthcare and even how that's evolved over time and you know, if this includes just like the CVS or the Walgreens of the world or how pharmacies have evolved to, to be this access point for healthcare. So if pharmacy started off, as, as Dr. McDonald was talking about, as, as small business owners, much like physicians were before they joined uh, small, you know, small and large group practices and things like that. So they sort of evolved from the small business to larger chains to supermarket pharmacies, independent pharmacies. And I think what the pandemic has, has shown is they said, okay, where do we deliver healthcare to people who, uh, to, to the majority of the country, 90% of people in the country live within five miles of a pharmacy. Um, and the interesting thing is when you think about COVID vaccination, which Rhode Island leads the nation in, uh, you know, three quarters of the population of the country and probably in a larger number in Rhode Island got their vaccine from pharmacies. I got one of my vaccines from a pharmacy, my partner did, my kids did. Um, and again, we don't have a law to say that pharmacists in Rhode Island can give pediatric vaccines, but the federal government said, this is so important. We need to do this. We just uh, passed, uh, got approval for uh, booster vaccines for five to 11 year olds. I guarantee you, I'm gonna bring my kids to the pharmacy to do that because not only are pharmacies accessible, open on weekends, open for appointments, for walk-ins, but they can, you can get testing done there. Um, huge, huge role for, for uh, COVID testing, COVID vaccines, other vaccines. I expect that we'll try to maintain some of those public health emergency authorizations to allow pediatric vaccines. Other states have done that uh, recently to say, wow, this was great, pharmacists like this. And we got paid to do it just as any other healthcare professional delivering vaccines uh, to do that. Uh, one aspect that has really expanded care has been collaborative practice agreements, and I've been involved in a lot of those for naloxone and buprenorphine to treat substance use disorders. You know, the more that you have the ability to walk into a place and say, you know, I'm ready for care, refer me to care, deliver care, uh, test me, uh, the more that we really expand uh, the public health role of the pharmacist. Dr. Bratberg, let me ask you this. We've actually been talking about this a little bit last uh, couple of weeks here, but You've also been an advocate for states to issue standing orders so that pharmacies, pharmacists can play a role in treatment for substance use disorders, as an example. Can you talk to us about what a standing order is and how pharmacists are stepping up in this regard? Yeah, so I think we all know that care is provided optimally when you have a team, right? When you have experts, pharmacy plays the medication specialist expert. Uh, you have public health, you have social work, you've got um, maybe physical therapy in some cases, the physician, the nurse practitioner, the nurse, all these folks work better in a team when they have access to the information. Uh, when people collaborate, we also can expand care. So standing order is where an authorized provider, prescriber uh, says, you know, I think that pharmacies under pharmacists uh, or nurses under this condition can actually dispense naloxone. Here's the need. Here's when you do it. 
uh, we'll sign it under Dr. McDonald's name or Dr. Chan's name, and that's what we can do in the state. And we can do that through both standing orders to say, um, we can administer vaccines, right? Set standing order for COVID vaccines or for measles vaccines or flu vaccines. We do those through sort of vaccine protocols or standing orders. But it can also can be collaborative practice agreements, not only for naloxone, but also for buprenorphine to say, let's work with physicians under the emergency regulations to increase access to life-saving medications for opioid use disorder and to make sure that the provider who's a data waiver provider and the pharmacist who also has the equivalent addiction uh, medication training work together to give patients access to these, to these medications. As many touch points as possible, we know that when people want to get treatment, um, there's no reason to delay their care and pharmacies and pharmacists play that uh, role to fill that gap. And Dr. Brackberg, let's just follow up on that a little bit. Like, I think about the pandemic, it really did change the role of the pharmacist you know, really one of the things I saw is just, you know, the pharmacist role changed dramatically. I just really saw they became more clinical. And I thought it'd be kind of fun just to chat about that a little bit. What did you see as you saw the pharmacist change? So just Dr. Bapak, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I found myself, uh, you know, as the sort of public health role I am at both at the college and having taught for a long time and know a lot of pharmacists in the state, they're saying, hey, how do we train our technicians to give vaccines so that we can do testing? Um, you know, we have What's the latest information? They Many people said, I love the information that's coming from the health department. I trust it. It keeps me up to date. I'm super busy because not only did the pandemic close a lot of primary care offices and delay a lot of uh, care, pharmacies stayed open. If there was a place that you can get sort of free expert information, it was the pharmacist. You could call them. They were open. You could stop in. They're wearing masks behind plexiglass, but they were open at a time when physician offices weren't. And so I think it was this realization to say, well, you can't go to the office to get tested, but you can go to the pharmacy. You can even drive through the pharmacy. And if you can get a test there, wouldn't it be great that when we have treatments like we do now with antivirals, that not only do they have them in stock, but they could actually through standing orders prescribe them. And so we're pursuing those kinds of things. And to say, well, what other kinds of tests to treat models do we have? We actually have a theme issue for our uh, the largest pharmacy journal in the country for which I'm associate editor, the Journal of the American Pharmacists Association, we have a special issue on test to treat. So think about pharyngitis, think about all these things that through protocols, through appropriate training and appropriate documentation, you could test and get treated and leave that day, no matter what situation in the world there is. And, and we realize that uh, we have that success. We gave monoclonal antibodies through drive-throughs in certain pharmacies and certain uh, places in, in our state and elsewhere. That's really what the pandemic said is that we urgently need to get these things to people now. Pharmacies are the ideal place to do it because they're visible, they're accessible, there's an expert there, let's use them. And I think Dr. Brackbird, that that's uh, really been one of the key points I think as uh, was mentioned, you know, pharmacies are really, you know, everyone lives within a, a reasonable distance from a pharmacy. So they're well set up if you think about as a network and they've been really critical during the pandemic for things like testing, like vaccination. Uh, et cetera. So, I, I mean, I, we've used them here in Rhode Island. They've been important nationally, uh, but uh, I think we've all realized, you know, on the public health side, just how important this network of pharmacies were, just as that touch point to healthcare uh, and certainly COVID testing and vaccination. Uh, Dr. Silvera, let me ask you this. Uh, Dr. Brackford just mentioned, uh, briefly touched on this test to treat program. This is something folks may have seen in the, in the news. It's been touted by the Biden administration, but can you talk us, uh, just mention uh, briefly what exactly is test to treat uh, 
and, uh, and how uh, pharmacies are involved in this. Sure, I'd love to. So test to treat is this great ideal strategy that we'd have where patients would go to the pharmacy, get tested for COVID-19 if they were positive and they met the recommendations or the qualifications to be prescribed an antiviral treatment for COVID-19, then we could have a pharmacist or an advanced practicing prescriber provide that comprehensive checklist evaluation for the patients, make sure they're eligible, prescribe it, and then dispense that antiviral treatment right there at the pharmacy. I don't think we're quite at the place that the Biden administration wants us to be right now, um, just because there's a lot of what if questions that we have, because we don't all have access to the same system. We may not know if someone has possibly like we were talking about earlier, like their kidney dysfunction, if that changes their dose. So there's a lot of questions like what ifs that we have as pharmacists, but ideally if the patient could go get tested, prescribed and dispense this medication all at one location, it would be perfect. And people would have even more access to these treatments and hopefully have an easier course if they were sick. Thank you, Dr. Silvera. I want to move now to Dr. Bratberg. So Dr. Bratberg, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past is, you know, it's interesting, you know, pharmacists often work for corporations. Uh, we don't have corporate practice of medicine in Rhode Island, but we sure do have corporate practice of pharmacy. And one of the things I just wonder about is, you know, we do have a shortage of healthcare staff. We have a shortage of pharmacists. And sometimes I worry that we're asking too much of pharmacists. It's kind of funny. Like, I mean, I tell you, like I grew up in a pharmacy. I, I tell you this day, I can still remember the smell of green soap in that little brown you know, paper when you wash your hands and just, you know, just remember everything about growing up in a pharmacy. But it's changed so much. And, you know, filling a prescription is still a really core function of a pharmacist. But there's just so much. I mean, what are your thoughts? Do you worry a little bit that we're overwhelming the pharmacist right now? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I always like to, whenever I'm talking about pharmacists, especially to other professionals, I want to say all of healthcare is affected by this pandemic. All of healthcare is affected by corporatization, both inpatient and outpatient and all of these things. Now we do see the successes that we need to sustain and maybe we need regulatory change for those things. Um, you know, uh, one corporation headquartered here decided to give all of their pharmacists a lunch break. You know, that's, an important thing. That's an important concession. I think they're hiring like mad. And I, I actually just had a conversation today to say, yeah, there's a lot of pharmacists who are retiring early. They've got burnout. They see other opportunities. They take them. And while that shifts, I think the advantage to that is that my graduates, who I want to have the best job that they, that they want and the one that they will like is to say, now there's leverage on our grads with the most advanced clinical training to say, look, I demand these kinds of things because there's been such turnover. And so now we have sort of a younger workforce making these demands that sort of reflects the greater labor force in general to say, look, we're going to unionize or we're going to, I'm not saying pharmacists union, but, you know, find the ways to say, look, I want to use this training. Let's figure out how we can automate certain things, or I can do my best when technicians can do X, Y, and Z or if I have this technician to pharmacist ratio, or if I have a lunch break, or if I don't have to work 13 hours, um, you know, we're making, we're figuring out the financing differently and trying to regulate uh, pharmacy benefit managers, uh, which are sort of an intermediary between the pharmacist and the insurers. Um, I think we're trying to pass bills that say we should get reimbursed for the cognitive services and the conversations we have with patients. We may, we're on the cusp of passing Pharmacists prescribed hormonal contraception with a payment uh, modality built into the statute. That's fantastic. It's only going to happen if we get paid for our services. So it's great that we're accessible and visible, 
one of the reasons testing and vaccination and treatment works for COVID-19 is because we are getting paid for all those things. So we need to duplicate that success um, to make sure that people stay in their jobs. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, we have lots and lots of pharmacy students graduating. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're going to see this blip go away um, and end up delivering better care to patients and more quality care with more satisfied workers. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Brackbird. And I think you touched on this, but you know, the future of pharmacies in general, you know, we see minute clinics uh, at, at, at CVS. Uh, we see healthcare delivery more and more being embedded in some of these pharmacies. I mean, is that the future of pharmacies? Where do you think we're going? And let me ask you this. I think it, certainly, uh, you know, as a physician who also, you know, feels overworked at times, it's great to have uh, pharmacists, uh, you know, working on things like this. Do you think that there, do you think it takes away from the care of the patient at all without uh, without patients uh, seeing the physician per se in this case, or how, how do you think about that? that? That's a big question and probably deserves a whole other podcast, much like uh, my podcast called The Regimen that we do for my public health rotation. Uh, people can sign up and smash that subscribe button. You know, I, I would like to see pharmacies, you know, they're still accessible, they still need a brick and mortar, but we've got such an emphasis on, on telehealth, on telepharmacy, telemedicine, whatever you want to call it to say, Maybe somebody walks in a pharmacy and they say, you know, I'm really, I really, my job is not to diagnose you, but I can connect you with Dr. Chan or Dr. McDonald here, uh, who's the on-call uh, primary care or specialty physician who will figure out what you have, um, maybe delegate the authority for me to do a physical exam because we can train people to do that. Um, maybe we can do some labs, some rapid tests there, and we have sort of tests to treat with the physician involved with sharing of information. And maybe there's a private room so that a lot of the public health problems we have really are problems of privacy and, and, uh, and, and stigma. Um, and so we can provide uh, sort of the, instead of a wall of medications, we've got a wall of appointment rooms and, and pharmacists are staffing them or other healthcare personnel. And we're being able to test and monitor and treat and do those kinds of things. Again, if we get the ability to prescribe contraceptives, maybe there are independent pharmacies or, or other pharmacies will say, you know, we need a room because now we can, we have a model of clinical care to provide that contraception or we're, we're going to have medication administration. So we're going to have protocols to say, go to the pharmacy to get your monthly injection of X. And maybe you get a telehealth, uh, mental health referral or mental health care at the pharmacy in that room. There's lots and lots of models that I think we're seeing that the pandemic has shown and hopefully the goal here is to reduce disparities and provide access to care for people who don't typically have that care. Well, interestingly enough, we've come to the end of our time together. Just quite fascinating here really quickly. We've learned a lot about the pharmacy world. It's been great to see the pharmacy world just quite frankly adapt and expand. And I think that's part of what the future looks like. Um, you know, it's not just a place to get your medicine filled anymore, not just a place to pick up a Hallmark card or a Russell Stover box of candy. You can get a vaccine, you can get a test for COVID. It turns out you can actually get your Paxlovid and other treatment there as well. So a lot of fun things going on in the world of pharmacy. Um, so Stephanie, it's time to cue the music. One of our traditions at Public Health Out Loud, though, is to close out every episode with the final word from Dr. Chan. Dr. Chan, what is the final word today? Thank you, Dr. McDonald, and I'd like to end by thanking Dr. Bratberg and Dr. Silvera for your time, and thank you for all your work in general on behalf of the Department of Health. And in closing, I want to leave our listeners with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your week. And here it is from one of my favorite people, Barack Obama. If you're willing to walk down the right path and you're willing to keep walking, 
eventually you'll make progress. Thank you all and be well. I want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer. Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good and keep up the great.